This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. You are listening to The Overwhelmed Brain. Today's episode is brought to you by GetOutOfTheMess.com. Let Asha, your Legal Shield associate, connect you to a legal insurance plan that's right for you. Get quality attorneys at established law firms for about $20 a month. Are you annoyed by affirmations? Are you tired of that same old rehashed personal growth advice that all seems to boil down to think positively and all your problems will go away? If affirmations feel like lies and positive thinking feels like denial, then I want you to get ready. The Overwhelmed Brain is here to help you create the life you want now. Hello and welcome to The Overwhelmed Brain. I am your host, personal empowerment coach, Paul Coliani, and I am here to help you increase your emotional intelligence, strengthen your self-worth and self-esteem, and empower you so that you can make decisions that are right for you. Everything I talk about on this show is my personal opinion and is meant for informational and educational purposes only. Always consult your counselor, therapist, physician, or whoever you consult with before making any changes to your medical treatment. All right, I'm going to get into a quick subject that I, I don't really have too much to say on, which is uh, something suggested by someone named Veronica. She said, let's talk about stonewalling. <laughs> and uh, stonewalling is one of those uh, things, if you've never heard of it, where someone you have a relationship with uh, just doesn't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it, whatever, we'll talk later, or we'll just forget about this issue. And... Uh, in the matter of relationships, it can also be a way of, uh, could be a way of emotional abuse. I guess it is emotional abuse in the sense that um, you are withholding uh, maybe closure, some sort of emotional healing, um, closure of an argument or anything that you've been talking about with your partner. And uh, they just say, forget it. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, it's, you know, it's too late or it's, I just, there's nothing more to say on the subject. Now, when this happens in my life, it drives me crazy. <laughs> it probably drives you crazy too, because you want to continue talking. You want to finalize things. You want to close things. You want to finish the conversation. And the other person's like, no, forget it. Uh, let's not talk about it anymore. It doesn't matter. There's a stonewalling comment. It doesn't matter or whatever. And uh, when they say something like that to stop the conversation so you don't talk about it anymore, it almost feels like, I don't know, they have the upper hand. 
and there's nothing more you can say to support your side. And uh, when they do this, it's like silencing you. It, it's probably what might be considered the one of the biggest invalidations you can experience when you have something to say and someone just stops you, cuts you off, or doesn't allow you to finish or say what you want to say. So that feels invalidating. I'm about to say something. I want to talk about this more. I want to tell you my side of things. Nope, forget it. It doesn't matter. So what do you do with that? Well, the stonewalling in a relationship uh, can be damaging. Stonewalling is very similar to the silent treatment. I think that's even compared. If you look on the um, stonewalling Wikipedia, they'll compare it to all these other things that are very closely tied with, if not actual emotionally abusive uh, behavior. So you look at these behaviors and stonewalling is in there with the silent treatment. Silent treatment is when you, I don't know, withhold love or attention or commentary from someone and they really want to talk with you or feel your love, uh, get your support, but you withhold it. And it is a, it is a way of controlling the other person. It may not feel that way when you do it. You, you may be processing something if you give someone the silent treatment. I mean, I used to do that. I used to give my wife when I was married the silent treatment, and um, it would make her feel badder. <laughs> I mean, more bad, you know, worse than she did because we were in an argument or I was judging her about something. And uh, then I would give her the silent treatment because I would sulk. I would be in my own stuff. And I didn't want to talk about my stuff. I just wanted her to fix her stuff so I didn't have to deal with my stuff. And it's a very dysfunctional place to be. And I would call that stonewalling as well. Because she would be like, where are you? Where did you go? Uh, I felt so alone. I felt so unloved. And that's a pretty, I hate to say, terrible thing to do to your partner. And I, I, I say I hate to say it because... I know people do that. I know we've all probably done it because we need that processing time or we just don't want to deal with our emotions and we hope that the other person comes to their senses. But a lot of us have done this silent treatment where we withhold talking to the person. We're angry, we're upset, we're sad, we're afraid. So we don't talk to them. And I think that's very similar to stonewalling, which is just cutting them off or making the subject moot. It's no longer important. I don't know how many uh, times I've had that kind of conversation with the partners of my life where they go, well, forget about it. It doesn't matter anyway. And I just feel like, uh, uh, I have more to say. And I've learned, which I think you should learn, uh, to thwart stonewalling. And I, like I said, I'm not going to talk about this a long time. I'm just going to give you maybe one tidbit uh, of a suggestion so that if you are stonewalled, if someone just cuts you off and says, whatever, it doesn't matter anyway, or forget about it. Let's just stop talking about that subject. Then I think you should give them a, I don't know, an allowed timeout for stonewalling. I wouldn't call it that. I wouldn't say that's what you're doing, but give them an allowed timeout so that they can process what they need to process 
and then you come back to it. Unless you're like me where I'm just going to go, oh no, we're not going to throw this under the rug because there's still something we need to talk about and I'm going to bring it up again until we get this out. I mean, it doesn't always work that way and I don't always do that, but I like to address things in the moment because I hate walking around with that lingering uh, lack of closure, with that lingering unfinished business. just hate that feeling. So I like to talk about it and get it out. And, you know, even if you have to yell and scream at me because you hate it, and that can be a little assertive on my part, but uh, I like to do that because I don't like anything lingering. If, If they stay lingering in their anger at me and then we never talk about it again, guess what? That builds resentment. That builds um, repressed or regressed negative energy toward me, and it could, and it could get worse, and it could come out in other ways. So I like to address it when I can in the moment. It doesn't always work. I might say, "No, we're going to talk about it right now," and she might be fuming and say, "No, I need time to process this," which is fine. Or even if she doesn't say that, I'll still back off if there's no way to address it. And I'm not saying that's the most productive way to address it, to say, hey, we got to talk about this right now. But it is important to get get it, get whatever it is addressed so that it doesn't linger. So back to my suggestion, which is giving a stonewalling timeout is actually backing off, letting them process, and then addressing it again when things are calm. Stonewalling typically centers around a uh, sensitive subject. So when you bring it up again, it might still have that negative energy. It might still be very sensitive, which is why it's, you know, something that you may want to wait a few hours. You may want to wait the night and then talk about it in the morning. Uh, And you may also want to say, all right, let's take a break from this, but I do want to discuss it later. And I promise to be open and I promise to listen that's my suggestion is allow a stonewalling timeout either for them or hopefully they can allow it for you if you want to get into that space. And then uh, if they're stonewalling you, say, I do want to talk about this, but I promise that I'll be calmer, more reasonable, and more open-minded when we talk about it again. But I do realize that you need to process this or you know, think about it and I will you know, step back and, and leave you be with that. That might be hard to do. You might be triggered. You might be emotionally triggered where you just feel like, I don't care. I know I'm right. I know I'm right. But if you're going to look at a relationship as a bigger picture, what do I want overall for this relationship? Is it so important that I'm 100% right in the span of years we've been together that I look at this one moment and go, I need to be right about this? Because if I'm right and I can convince this other person that they're wrong, that'll make me feel good and it'll put them in their place. But what does that do to the bigger picture? The bigger picture is I want a loving, kind, supportive relationship that I can look forward to seeing my partner every day. Does me being right in this moment contribute to that? Because the other thing that happens is when you choose to back off and choose to let go of your attachment to being right and you're open to being wrong, then you actually allow for uh, love to flourish. That sounds kind of tacky, but (laughs) it's, it's the truth. I mean, you allow for love to exist in the relationship and don't allow 
for a single challenge to define the feeling of the relationship. You don't allow that single argument to be the overall vibe for your relationship. So it's important to understand that uh, when you let go of your attachment to being right and proving them wrong, you allow for love to exist in a space more free of the challenges and obstacles that can happen from these heated conversations that you have with people that you love. So there is my take on stonewalling. There's not much to say about it except that it is a lack of communication and or an opportunity for the other person to process. It's, I mean, I've seen this happen too. I've seen where someone will stonewall because they know they're going down a road that they will be proven wrong. <laughs> this happens with people too. I'm going to stop this communication now because you're being ridiculous. And that is a great way to just stop the other person from continuing to prove you wrong, especially when you know you're wrong. I don't know if you know any politicians like that, <laughs> but there are people like that out there that know they're going down a road of getting blamed and the other person being right about that blame. But let me divert. Let me redirect. And let's talk about something else instead of that subject. Or let me just cut you off altogether and say, I don't want to talk about this. You're wrong. I'm right. So I'm out of here. That's tried and true manipulation right there. And it keeps the uh, person who is, quote, wrong about something or who doesn't have a solid uh, foundation in truth or facts. It is an escape for them to get out of that um, place of blame and responsibility. So that's my take. Thank you for asking. I do think it is an important part of a dysfunctional relationship in the sense that if you want to keep the dysfunction alive, then absolutely shut down your partner. Make them stop talking about the important issues. Great way to keep the dysfunction alive. Of course, I don't want you to do that, but that's how you do it. So there you go. I'll be right back and I'll get into the next subject after this. I got a message the other day from uh, one of my clients, actually. I was going to say someone else's clients, but I think it was one of my clients. And she used the Legal Shield service that Asha with Get Out of the Mess uh, helps connect you with. And she was telling me that she's renewing her apartment lease. And there was something like an addendum or something that conflicted with another part of the contract. And as she was on the phone with me, she said, you know, I wanted to know if... Uh, I could opt out of this contract if I found a new place because it was like a 13-month lease that she had to sign several months early so she'd actually uh, sign it a year and a half before the lease expired. And I was like, well, what are you talking about? And she goes, well, I wanted to know if I could opt out, but there was an addendum saying that I couldn't opt out or something like that. And she said, so I called my law firm and I sent them the contract and they said, don't worry, addendums supersede the contract. And I heard that and I was like, really? <laughs> I didn't know that. She goes, yes. She said the attorney said the addendum supersede the contract. So no matter what it says, the addendum uh, overrides it and you go by that. I was like, really? That's 
fantastic. That's good to know. I didn't know that. And I'm not saying that's what happens in every state and every district. Uh, I'm just saying that when she called, that's what she was told regarding her contract. So I found that fascinating. And I found that another great use of this service that Asha connected her with. And um, I want you to have access to that service too. My client, she pays like $24 a month for the family plan. So, you know, if her kids or her husband have any questions about legalities of things, they can call and they can figure stuff out and have their answers in the same day. So you should check this out. You should um, give Asha a call and find out if this service is right for you too. She can be reached at 678-355-8777. You can go to her website, getoutofthemess.com. And uh, she's an independent associate for Legal Shield, And she can answer your questions to find out if this is going to work for you. It's in the U.S. or Canada only, so you kind of have to follow that guideline. Sorry, uh, Sweden. <laughs> I don't know what you guys use outside of the U.S. or Canada. Maybe there's some other legal services out there. But this is a great service. I use it. Asha uses it. My clients use it. And I want you to check it out, too. She's a great representative to have on your side. Give her a call. 678-355-8777 or getoutofthemess.com. Welcome back. I'm going to read you a letter from someone that I'm going to call Amanda. Amanda says, Paul, you've helped me so much in my journey. I love your podcast and I can't praise them enough. Thank you, Amanda. Now I've noticed that I've started struggling with igniting or keeping friendships uh, going since relocating. I've always been a bend over backwards friend that's almost always available. But notice that since I've moved, people I meet don't share the same sentiment. Now, I did become close with some people since I've moved, but the past year where I've been trying to honor myself and the fact that I believe friendship is a two-way street has led me to stop engaging with people that I don't feel show up in my life in the way I show up in theirs emotionally or physically. It's gotten so bad that I've basically stopped engaging with nearly everyone I meet while still holding on to my friendships back home. It's an isolating feeling, really. My question is, am I honoring myself in the wrong way? What can I do to see friendships differently or to at least remove my idea of what they are for? Thanks for any advice you have, uh, no matter how hard it might be to hear. I also want to add that I stopped engaging because I know I need to work on how to better manage friendships before I screw up any of the budding ones by expressing how I feel. A lot of women aren't used to speaking about what their expectations are in a friendship. I feel it's made them uncomfortable, so I just backed off while I figure out how to take friendships less seriously. It makes me feel like a needy mess. All right, Amanda, thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, I did have an episode on friendship that might be helpful, but you may have heard that, and I'm going to give you some um, more of my opinions on friendships. For example, one of the things that you said uh, is that friendships should be a two-way street. Or at least you believe that a friendship is a two-way street. And uh, my take is that, um, well, my take is more of a question. Should friendships be an equal two-way street? Should you set up your friends to be equals in the way you treat them? And is that fair? Now, I'm just throwing that out there. It may or may not cause you to feel any different about your question. 
I look at it in the way uh, of asking the question, is it fair to put uh, expectations on friends? Do you go through life and say, all right, I gave Susie a ride home. Now that means she owes me a ride next time. And if she doesn't do it, then the friendship isn't equal. And you may not do that. And that might be an extreme example. Uh, I actually met someone who was like that, though. And uh, they their friendship with me didn't last, but that's okay. Uh, they had their own way of engaging with friends, as you say. It just wasn't my way. Because their expectations of me must be balanced to a T. I gave you a ride on February 4th, and I've been holding on to that, uh, and now you're giving me a ride. And I remember her saying, now that I've given you a ride, we're equal. And I thought, wow, that's kind of a strange thing to say. You've been thinking about that for three months? (laughs) Like, this favor must be returned no matter what? So I'm not saying that's wrong to think that. I think that some people do hold expectations like that. And you may or may not appreciate it. I personally don't necessarily want friends that keep tabs on me. Like, I go in the direction of um, trends. My friends follow trends, I guess you could say. If I take my friend out to lunch um, once a week and I pay every time, then the trend is I keep paying and I need to look at that and go, wait, that's not fair. I need to equalize that. I need to balance that out. The trend is I'm paying too often, which is every time. So I need to mention it. I might say, hey, you know what? I paid the last two times. Why don't you pay this time? I think that's a healthy thing to do for a friendship, especially that one that is based on equality. And I think all friendships should be, to a certain extent, equal, but not. Like, not so equal that it's tit for tat every time. I think that it needs to be looked at in the sense of trends. If your friends follow a trend that, I don't know, dishonors you, disrespects you often, then you need to look at that and go, okay, this friendship isn't working out in an equal way or a balanced way, and I always feel like I'm compromising myself. That's another way to look at friendships. Are you compromising yourself often? Or at all. For example, I used to go to lunch with a friend of mine when I lived in Florida. Occasionally I would pay. Occasionally he would pay. Neither of us ever thought twice about who paid last time and who's going to pay this time. It just wasn't an issue. I think that's the kind of friendship where you both have good intentions to not want to take advantage of the other person. That's a good type of friendship to have, in my opinion. However, I've talked with people who have had friends that never paid for lunch. They would go to lunch, have a great time, and then the same person would always end up with the bill. I don't think this should happen. I think that trend is unhealthy because it builds resentment. I like to avoid resentment by addressing what trend is happening in the moment. As soon as I feel that there might be some inequality going on, I address it. And I think this is where people might find it hard to take the steps they need to keep Uh, some sort of equality. Again, it's not a tit for tat. It's, hey, this is going in a direction I don't like. Because a true friend doesn't want to take advantage of you. So by addressing it, by bringing it up, like the fact that they need to pay for lunch, is something that they'll actually appreciate. A true friend will appreciate you reminding them that it's their turn to pay for lunch. They'll go, oh, you're, you're so right. You paid last two times. I'm so sorry. Yes, I'll get this. No problem. If, however... 
they're not really a true friend, and you mention, hey, you know what, this time it's your turn. I paid last two times. They may resent having to pay at all, and they might even get upset with you. So I want you to think about that, is that when you, like you said, Amanda, like, am I honoring myself the wrong way? I think it depends on your approach. I think people get stuck on the how. You said you're honoring yourself, but how are you doing so? Especially in situations like I describe here. To me, it's pretty easy. If my friend hasn't paid for lunch the last two or three times, like I said, I'm going to say, lunch is on you today. I got the last two times. And they're going to say, oh, great, no problem. Because we both have good intentions. We both have, we both realize that we're in this together and we don't want to take advantage of the other person. I make it a matter of fact statement. Hey, your lunch is on you today. It's even kind of funny. Hey, lunch is on you today. It doesn't really become a topic of conversation where you go, what? Me? Why should I pay? It doesn't go to that because we both trust each other and we both have good intentions for each other. We're two people having lunch who would both offer to pay as long as we thought of it. And being reminded to pay is no problem because we're both honorable and would do almost anything for the other person. That's the kind of perception I carry around with me. It's not something I really think about. I I have people in my life that I assume trust exists, that I trust them, and I assume they trust me. I assume the best of my friend and expect that they would be happy to pay for lunch because it's only fair. And I'm just using lunch as an example. This is the metaphor for everything that can happen in a friendship. So the idea of the how to honor yourself is to get comfortable asking someone else to pay when it's time for them to pay. Again, using that lunch metaphor. If you feel uncomfortable asking someone else to pay, then is it really them who is not fulfilling their role as a friend by not assuming what they need to do? Or is there something in you that expects people to act like you? In other words, your role in a friendship is to be a friendly reminder for someone who might need a friendly reminder and not carry around an attitude of, oh, I hope they pay this time. I hope I don't have to deal with that. Because the attitude I carry around with me is assuming the best of my friend and assuming they have the best of intentions for me because they believe in the equality of their relationship too. I don't, however, carry around the idea that people should behave like me or act like me Because I could go to, uh, using this lunch example, I could go to lunch every time thinking, okay, last time I paid, this time he'll pay. And next time he pays, I'm going to pay after that. I could follow that logic and keep uh, my checklist just to make sure everything's fair every single time. Or I could let things slip and just be okay enjoying my time with this friend. And then maybe I'll see a trend appearing like uh, he hasn't paid the last three times. Hey, it's time for you to pay now. I've paid the last three times. Not that I would say it that way, but you get what I mean. It's not a matter of uh, doing what you said, which is setting up expectations of the friendship. I think that is maybe a little strange to go, okay, if we're going to have a friendship, this is what I expect of it. I try that on and I feel a little uncomfortable if a friend said that of me. Um, I like the idea of honoring yourself in the moment when it happens. Like, hey, I paid last time. I think you should pay this time. And finding out the response that you get. Because the responses will tell you what kind of person they are. To set them up 
to act like you want them to act or set the expectation of how you expect them to behave in the friendship kind of sets them up to not really invest in the friendship genuinely. Now it almost feels like you need to walk on eggshells to satisfy your expectations of a friendship. So I don't think I'm a fan of setting up expectations of a friendship. I can understand maybe doing that in a relationship like, I won't have this and I will have this and I won't have that. But again, you just want to feel it out and make sure it's not something that you just step in and go, I refuse to have this and I refuse to have that and this and this and this. You must qualify for these three categories in my life and these subclasses (laughs) because you're going to turn people off. You might offend people. So I like the idea of feeling things out, seeing where it goes and looking at their responses and seeing if they respond favorably to you honoring yourself. Like, hey, I paid last time. Uh, why don't you pay this time? That's honoring yourself. You feel that's equal. Or you could, you know, pay for lunch twice. And then the third time, you know, I paid the last two times. And uh, hey, why don't you get the bill today? I've paid the last two times. You can even add, hey, it would really help me out if you paid this time. I paid the last two times. And again, uh, I believe, my opinion, a true friend's going to go, oh, of course. I, you know, I didn't even know that you paid the, the last time. I'm so sorry. I wasn't even thinking about it. I just see a friend acting like that. So, you know, you may lose friends like that. You may lose, quote, friends who may want to take advantage of you. I don't know. Or maybe they think there's some inequality going on. Maybe they're driving you to lunch. Again, this is all metaphoric. (laughs) Maybe they're driving you to lunch every day and they never ask for gas money. And so it's assumed that you get lunch, I'll get gas. I don't know. That's the kind of things that you think about which you can also introduce in the conversation. Like, hey, you know what? You drive every day and I pay for lunch, but let me pay for gas. And then see where the conversation goes from there. Maybe it'll be like, oh, thank you so much for offering. There might have been some resentment in there, like you never offered for gas. So it's just something to keep in mind. Like, how can you balance out the equation just in case they're thinking uh, something that they're not speaking about? It would be great if we all had open communication and talked with each other. doesn't always happen. So sometimes you just have to explore what might be out in the open, what might be lingering. So Amanda, I hope this helps with your question. Friendships are important. They are vital. And uh, you moving to a new place, you know, I tell you what, uh, every time I've moved, it's taken me years, I mean years, to build uh, strong friendships. But I think that's just because I'm an introvert, and uh, or mostly, and I don't normally go out and do a lot of recreational things with a lot of people. Uh, I've gotten better at it lately and I've noticed that the more things I do with groups and communities and the more I get involved in things, the more friends I tend to make. I still, at the end of the day, probably want to be alone and just relaxed in my own space or at least uh, with the people I love most. Uh, But I do appreciate the friendships I have and I also do appreciate that they allow me to be myself. And that is something they appreciate about me. And I think it's great to have friends that allow you to be yourself. They support who you are and who you need to be for yourself. So I hope that helps. Off to the next subject right after this.
All right, we're back, and I'm going to read you another email. It is from someone uh, talking about emotional abuse, something that I have learned a lot about in the past uh, few years, mainly because of my own history with it, uh, as far as me doing it to someone else and learning uh, to what extent it can uh, happen. I look at my own past and go, you know, geez, I was doing this amount, and I thought that was a lot. And it turns out there's like a whole lot worse that it can get. So let's let's talk about this for a second. Um, this person writes, Hi, Paul, I'm pretty sure past emotional abuse would affect my current situation, but just how much? I used to think that maybe my current husband was the emotional abuser, but I was for a fact emotionally abused from previous relationships, including my mom and my ex-husband. So just how bad can those previous ones cause current problems? And what can I do to make sure that I'm not the one now emotionally abusing my partner? All right, so um, like I said, I talk about emotional abuse a lot, and I've created the uh, MEAN workbook. You can go to theoverwhelmedbrain.com forward slash MEAN, M-E-A-N, if you want to find out about that workbook. It's like a really enlightening process to find out if you're being emotionally abused or uh, if you know you are, then uh, actually having like a very detailed analysis of what's going on in your uh, relationship. Very helpful. I've gotten a lot of good feedback on it. Uh, But let me just explain my definition of emotional abuse before I go on. Just in case um, I say it all the time and it's like, well, what is it exactly? Uh, It is multifaceted. It has a lot of angles. Uh, But for the most part, my definition is when someone uses your emotions against you to make you feel sad, upset, uh, guilty, ashamed, or some other awful feeling so that you'll do what the abuser wants you to do. You've got that. I'll, I'll reiterate it in several ways as we go through this. But um, some examples are, uh, like I was saying, when I was married, I, I did it. I was an emotional abuser in some ways. I can easily make my wife feel bad by giving her a dirty look when uh, she ate junk food. There's one example. Another example is, in almost all of my previous relationships, I would withhold love and attention from my partner. It made them feel uh, neglected and unloved. Another example is uh, some of my clients have said that their partners have uh, had sex with them aggressively, not really caring if they satisfied their partner, my client, or not. It was very selfish, and they didn't really care if they satisfied their partner. And it could be so aggressive that it could be uh, painful. That can be a form of emotional abuse and also physical and sexual abuse as well. Another example is that some of us grew up with emotionally abusive parents where one or both of our parents might withhold affection because uh, we were too noisy or we broke something or worse. Maybe they withheld affection just because we existed. That's not very nice to hear, but it can happen. Another example uh, is many emotionally abused people get blamed for things they didn't do. So there's always that uh, blaming, like, what, you're blaming me again and I, I didn't do it. And then they convince you that you're at fault. It's another uh, angle to that. Many emotional abusers tend to blame and hold their partner responsible so that they themselves don't have to feel any pain or fear associated with whatever's going on. For example, the cheating husband who blames his wife for his cheating because she didn't give him enough attention and affection. 
the emotionally abused wife will accept that as a legitimate reason for his cheating, showing that she has developed quite a resilience and tolerance for abusive behavior. All right, let's see what else. I have this uh, little bullet list here. Uh, Controlling someone with money so that they do what you say. That's more common in romantic relationships than most people think, like the uh, single parent raising the child at home while the other parent makes all the money. In an abusive relationship, that money can be a a severely controlling element, especially if the uh, person at home taking care of the child can't do anything without the money. Everything is controlled. Uh, Last example for now, a parent turning their kids against the other parent or even against each other, their siblings. So there are some examples of emotional abuse that I hope help define. I mean, that's just a, a tiny smidgen of examples. But the bottom line is that the abuser wants to control you and will set it up so that you feel bad if you're not under their control. It's really that simple and that complicated. It's simple because for the abuser, they don't have to practice or have empathy to do it. If the abuser doesn't have empathy, then it's really easy for them to do. They don't even have to think twice. It's just, it just comes out. It's complicated for those of us that connect empathetically because people with empathy cannot possibly comprehend how making someone feel bad is something anyone can do. And I want you to think about that for a moment because the empathy part is something that I've been learning more and more about uh, that is part of emotional abuse. When you don't have or connect with empathy, which is putting yourself in the other person's shoes and uh, experiencing what they feel. When you don't connect with that in yourself and having empathy for someone else, it's a lot easier to abuse them. Because if you were to put yourself in their shoes and think, hmm, if I were lied to, if I were deceived, if I were pushed, if I were forced to do something against my will, if I were physically hurt, how would that feel? And if you can go, oh, I wouldn't like that at all. I hate that feeling. If you can connect with that, then you're more likely to connect with your behavior that doesn't go in that direction. In in other words, you're more likely to not do behavior that hurts the other person. That's why it's so easy for people without empathy, and some people might call that psychopath. (laughs) Some people might call it sociopath. Uh, Some people might call it narcissistic. But there are people who just don't connect with empathy, even though they have it. Just because you don't connect with your empathy doesn't mean you're psychopathic or sociopathic or anything like that. Uh, But you just may not be able to connect with it. Maybe you weren't um, loved. Maybe you were neglected as a child. And that led to you not connecting with empathy or sympathy or compassion or things like that. And that has just been the way it's developed. I believe that it's in there. I've seen uh, what I thought were unempathetic people care for their children to an almost incestuous point where they just love being with their children so much that they can't get away from them, but they don't give a crap about anyone else on earth. I've seen a, a specific person have no empathy whatsoever. It, I, I could swear this person is antisocial or even psychopathic, but the way I see him treat his child it shows me that he has empathy. It shows me that he never wants to hurt that child. It shows that he actually has the capability to do it, but he just doesn't apply it in other areas. I'm not going to professionally diagnose here. I just want to tell you that I've observed 
that even if you believe you don't have empathy, it just might not be the right context that you apply it. And it might just be a matter of changing context or applying it uh, from a different context to another context or whatever. There's a whole show I should do on empathy sometime, but uh, I do see that people without empathy have a lot more capability to emotionally abuse. Just like me, when I was married, I could not have possibly practiced or connected with empathy because I was being emotionally abusive toward my wife. I could not have connected with my empathy because if I did, which I did after she left, after we got a divorce, I totally connected with empathy and went, oh, that's what I was doing to her. That's how she felt. Oh, suddenly I feel really bad about that. When I connected with that, I understood. If you can connect with that before your relationship goes south, then you might be able to save it. Then you might be able to go, whoa, when I say this, when I do this, it makes the other person feel like, you know, feel terrible. That's good to connect with if you want to save your relationship. Uh, That's if the other person wants to save their relationship as well. I'm not saying that every relationship is savable, but if you both are empathetic toward each other, it can be a huge, huge step forward, especially if it alters your behavior toward them as well, if the behavior is dysfunctional or damaging in some way. Now, to answer your question, Amanda, about how much does past emotional abuse affect you currently, I think a better question might be, does past abuse make you more susceptible to abuse today? So let me give you a quick and dirty answer. Your perception of love may very well be altered by the abuse. An emotionally abused person may see an overly affectionate person as kind and loving, but one who hasn't been emotionally abused may see that type of person as a little needy and even codependent. I got another bullet list here. Here's the next one. An emotionally abused person may see an overly helpful person as catering to their needs and feel special because they long for that kind of treatment. However, one who has been abused or has even healed from emotional abuse may see that type of person, an overly helpful person, as a rescuer that may have trouble being genuine because they spend too much time thinking about how to please others instead of honoring themselves. Someone who orders your meals for you, pays for everything, arranges everything in advance so that you don't have to worry about uh, planning or organizing, well, an emotionally abused person may see that type of person as uh, someone who's uh, swooped in and made life easier for them. However, other people may see that as controlling and manipulative. I'm not saying what's right or wrong here. I'm not saying that uh, one way is better than another. And I'm not saying that healthy people can't be overly helpful and uh, overly affectionate. And I'm not saying that any of this applies and then suddenly you're an emotional abusive person. I'm saying that how you perceive a healthy relationship is likely to be different than how someone who hasn't been abused perceives it. And because of your perception of relationships, you may actually get into more emotionally abusive relationships. A person who has been emotionally abused is very likely going to have a different perception of a relationship than someone who hasn't. Like I gave all those examples. If I was with my girlfriend and she started like catering to my every need, I would feel like, hey, what are you doing? You're, you know, you're making me feel like I'm helpless. You're actually taking some of my decision-making process away. You're taking some of my power away even. 
And she might say, yeah, but I'm making it easy for you. I, I just want to cater to your every need. And that makes me think, well, are you a rescuer? I think in these terms, because I've learned a lot about emotional abuse, I've learned a lot about the rescuing and people pleasing and codependence that can happen in relationships and how they try to get their needs met and try to get happy by meeting other people's needs and not their own, by not letting the other person come to their own decisions or do their own behavior or uh, take their own steps to make things better in their life. The rescuer is always trying to make up for that and take steps for them and try to cater to those needs. And it's really disempowering to people. It's uh, very similar to the way I used to be. When I was married or any of the relationships previous to that, uh, I was more in touch with my receptive, nurturing, caring side. And I was always uh, trying to be helpful. And I was, uh, I was predicting what my partner would need. I was getting anything they needed or wanted. I jumped in and made sure they were taken care of. And uh, because of that, they were so enamored, at least in the beginning, that it blinded them from noticing that I didn't have much of a balance in me. I was always catering to them. I was never really taking care of myself. I was uh, taking away their ability to make, uh, I don't know, decisions for themselves or even judgments about me. You know, if I jumped in and made sure that they were taken care of, then they couldn't think I was a bad person. If they don't think I'm a bad person, they must like me or even love me. The people pleaser in me wanted to be loved. And how do I get love? How do I get attention? I try to please others. I try to jump in. I try to predict what they need and cater to everything. And it can be uh, clingy. It can be uh, sort of, I don't want to say possessive, but you're always lingering. You're like a, a, a puppy following them around for attention. That's what I was like. I was like a puppy following around. What can I do next? What can I do for you? I'm loyal. I'm loyal. I'm dedicated. What else can I do for you? And if I helped them, that gave me the attention that I so craved. As uh, you heal from people pleasing and rescuing and codependence, you learn to nurture yourself, be compassionate toward yourself, and then respond to people when they actually ask for things of you. You let people have their power by making their own decisions. Like I know someone uh, that I'll say, hey, where do you want to go eat? And, they, and they'll say, I don't care. And I'll go, great, let's have Chinese. Yeah, not a problem. But um, the next time I ask, hey, where do you want to go eat? I don't care. I go, well, you know, what's your preference? You know, I'm, I can't think. I'm out of ideas. I don't care. Wherever you want to go, I'll eat. I'll go, okay, do you have a preference? Not really. I'll eat anything. And that can be a little bit... Um, I don't know, frustrating <laughs> because you want them to make a decision. You want to know who they are. What are their preferences? Everyone has preferences. Everyone has opinions. You don't want someone to be always so neutral and accommodating. And I know I'm getting on thin ice here. <laughs> if someone is always neutral and accommodating, it doesn't feel like they're real. I say I'm skating on thin ice because there are some very good people that are happy being who they are and happy being neutral and accommodating, and I don't want to offend those people. But to other people, to people like me, maybe like you listening, who are around people that are always neutral, always accommodating, always uh, overly helpful, it just doesn't seem real. It's like they can't have their own opinion. They'll have your opinion. 
they'll have your preferences, but what are their opinions? What are their preferences? Who are they? And it's hard to get to know someone like that who's just always in that neutral space. I'm not saying you can't be the Buddha. (laughs) I'm not saying you just can't have nothing ever bother you whatsoever. I think that's a different place than having even something as simple as preferences. I think even uh, the most peaceful meditative person would rather meditate in a sunny area than sitting in snow. I could be wrong. I mean, maybe there are they're out there, uh, but that might be a preference that most people prefer. And if they like sitting in snow, that's fine too. There, there are people that like sitting in snow, but it's still a preference, right? So whatever preference they uh, you have regarding that is still something you lean toward. So anyway, back to your question. Yes, absolutely. Your past can create a perception in you of a healthy relationship when it's not healthy. How do you know it's not healthy? How can you avoid it? I would highly recommend that when you get into a relationship, if it starts off the same way your other relationships did, that you should, how can I say this, approach it in a guarded way. Step into the relationship in a, in a guarded, observing way. For example, if you're used to emotionally abusive people and the relationships you've had in the past started with uh, something called love bombing or gift bombing where they, they're buying you gifts and making you feel good with every other sentence, every other comment, every compliment they give you and you just feel on top of the world all the time. If your other relationships started off like that, then I would be highly suspect of the person you're with now maybe ending up the same way. I'm not saying it happens all the time. I just would recommend that you uh, maybe write down what was great about how your other relationships started, except maybe with your mom, maybe your ex-husband or other people, and what are all the great things, and are those same great things happening in your current or next relationship? That's a good way to do it. I'm not saying it's going to be effective every time, but it gives you an idea of, of what you look for, what you're attracted to, and maybe where it might take you if you're not careful. The next thing, of course, I'm going to promote it. I'm going to talk about it. It is the mean workbook. If you don't have it and you believe you keep ending up in emotionally abusive relationships, get the workbook, theoverwhelmedbrain.com forward slash mean. It will have over 200 identifiers. You go through this checklist and there's a 50-page guide on what you're in, how bad you're in it, how deep you're in it, what you can do about it, what resources you have, and how to get your power back. And it's a great evaluation and assessment tool to make sure that you have enough knowledge so you don't uh, get into abusive relationships. Or if you're already in an emotionally abusive or manipulative relationship, It tells you what to do. It tells you how to get your power back and what's going to happen if nothing changes. And I don't have to tell you what's going to happen if nothing changes if you're in that type of relationship. It's kind of obvious, but maybe not. Maybe it's not obvious to you. To me, I see a downhill trend and it usually doesn't end well. Unless you prepare, unless you get your power back. And there is a way to save these relationships too. So it's not all about let's get out of this relationship. There is a way if both people are willing to work at it. So check that out when you get a chance. TheOverwhelmedBrain.com forward slash mean.
And uh, your last question about um, how can I make sure that I'm not the one who is now emotionally abusing my partner. Uh, you know, quite often when you're in emotionally abusive relationships, the only way, I'm not saying always, but the only way to get your needs met often in these types of relationships is when you become manipulative too, unfortunately. I've seen this uh, over and over again where someone will go into a relationship kind and caring and innocent and honest and you know doing the best they can and they are with the manipulator for so long that they don't know how to get uh, their needs met so they find out the only way to do it is that they have to become manipulative themselves because they have to outwit or out manipulate the manipulator and it sucks it's a terrible place to be I, I hate to see people go to that uh, extreme because they don't want to manipulate some and you shouldn't have to but in order to find peace or comfort or happiness, you have to go to extremes to get it because every other path you've taken that doesn't involve manipulation that is on the up and up, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to take the righteous path can end up with your unhappiness and you always feeling guilty and ashamed and wrong because they set you up that way. So it is possible that you have become manipulative yourself but again, that workbook will help you define what it is that makes up manipulation, what makes up emotional abuse, and determine if you know what you're doing to contribute to it, if you're doing it at all. I hope that helps. This is a very complex topic. That's why I made the workbook on it. It's a lot to talk about. It's a lot to digest and a lot to explain in a 20 or 30 minute segment. So best to you. I hope to get an update uh, with some sort of successful, positive step forward. Let me know. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Say some goodbyes and my final words after this. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Overwhelmed Brain. Thank you to Sharif for the iTunes review that starts off by saying, I love you, Paul. <laughs> Sharif likes my calm speaking and even my laugh. Thank you, Sharif. I love you, too. I want to thank today's sponsor, Asha, with Get Out of the Mess. Go to getoutofthemess.com and find out why she's used the Legal Shield service for, I don't know, six, seven, eight years and why I've signed up, and uh, why people are calling her left and right to find out if that service is right for them, too. She is your direct connection to information about the service and um, maybe even something that's going to make you feel more powerful and not so bullied around by people who just want you to be under their control. Enough of those controllers. Give her a call at 678-355-8777 or visit her website, getoutofthemess.com. And you heard me say it earlier, the mean workbook is available now. The uh, workbook will pinpoint exactly how you're being manipulated and or emotionally abused. It is a, an assessment on your relationship. In fact, uh, if you've never done an assessment like this before, uh, you may be shocked. You'll learn more about yourself and your partner than ever. If you often uh, feel guilty or are blamed or made to feel responsible for most, if not all, the problems in the relationship, if you feel like you're walking on eggshells, 
if you pick your words carefully so as not to upset your partner, if you seek validation from your partner but never seem to get it, and especially if your boundaries are being violated and maybe you don't even know they are, who knows? There's a lot that goes into emotional abuse and manipulation and this workbook will reveal a lot and will guide you through it to help you get your power back. Go to theoverwhelmedbrain.com forward slash mean. And I want to thank the patron members. Uh, Patron members support this show, support the websites. They do a lot of supporting. They don't even know how much they support. (laughs) They just become a member and get the free episodes and the free worksheets and the workbooks and even email coaching uh, with their support. So if you're interested in doing that, go to patron.theoverwhelmedbrain.com. This show does go on because of supporters like them. And uh, I definitely appreciate your support if you're a patron member. And if you're not, you can still use the Amazon button on the website, theoverwhelmedbrain.com. And that also helps support the show. So if you're getting value from this show, you can become a patron member and you can use the Amazon button. Or you can just start changing your life and learning and healing and growing and evolving, which would certainly bring value to my life. That's what I want for you. So thank you everyone who supports this show in the way they can. I appreciate you. And finally, thank you to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for some of the music transitions in the overwhelmed brain. And in closing, I'm just going to mention that, man, I like it up here. (laughs) I'm in New Hampshire right now. This is uh, where I went after my divorce. I lived in Oregon, traveled 3,000 miles to New Hampshire. This is where I used to live in my teenage years. This is where I went to high school. And uh, it's just gorgeous up here. It does snow. (laughs) It's not snowing now. It's actually been the best weather for October uh, that I've ever seen. And I'm glad that we're up here enjoying it. We, My girlfriend and I and her son took some time off from Georgia and decided to come up here to visit family and be on a vacation slash work vacation. So what I'm doing now, I'm working, but it's not really work. It's more like my contribution to, I don't know, the world, to people. This is what I like to do. This is what I want to do. I want to help you in any way I possibly can by sharing my insights by sharing what I know in hopes that it helps you get to a better place. Like I always say, I want you to feel empowered so that you can make decisions that are right for you. And it's empowering for me to be here. I always recommend getting away from your environment just to clear your head, just to reflect, just to have a different space to be in, to think in, to get away from all the influences, if possible. Not everyone can do that. Not everyone is capable of leaving their home. They, they're stuck. You know, I, I get it. I get that feeling. I, I was there. When my wife and I had no home, we had to stay in a um, shared 600-square-foot apartment. And we had nothing, and we were sharing a tiny space. And um, we had to go to the soup kitchen every morning, and uh, we couldn't do anything. We were confined to the systems that were available at that time. The welfare system, the, um, the programs that they had for people that didn't have money or home or anything. So, you know, I've been in that place and I now have that under my belt. I know that if I ever end up there again, I'll be okay. It's like I talked about my newsletter this past uh, few days where when you go to these places in your life, when you hit bottom, you develop a new reference and this reference acts as a, hey, I can do it. 
kind of marker in your life. Hey, I went through it. I survived. I can make the next one because I survived the last one. It doesn't mean you don't fear. It doesn't mean you don't have uh, reservations about what's going to happen next in your life. But it does give you that reference that you can take forward so that you feel a little bit more confident that you can make it through things. But, you know, back to New Hampshire. This is where I am right now recording this episode. I'm on a different microphone. I don't like it. (laughs) I sound different on it. It's not my regular recording microphone, but it's good enough. It gets the show out there. And um, one of the things that I also learned while being up here is that um, life seems a little bit less complicated. You know, we live on the outskirts of Atlanta, and when we leave our home... There's a three-lane highway, and we're on it. (laughs) It just happens. There's highway, there's traffic, and lots of people, and you're going. And then you get to the next place, and hopefully if there's no uh, traffic jams, you're on time. Here, it takes a half an hour to get to a supermarket. (laughs) So you have to plan ahead. Uh, But life seems a little bit less chaotic. Just today, I was hanging out with my girlfriend's father and we were doing, I don't know, this is going to sound weird, man stuff. (laughs) Could be woman stuff too, but it just, I felt like a man. I'm in a pickup truck. We're moving tables and uh, we're helping out his buddy get uh, some furniture into his house. And then we came back and put a boat in the garage and it just felt good. Felt good to move around. It wasn't like the hustle and bustle of the big city. It just felt good being outside and talking to real down-to-earth people. Not that Atlanta doesn't have that. There's tons of them down there, believe me. But when there are very few people, it just seems that you can have a chance to connect more with them. Whereas as opposed to when you're around lots and lots and lots of people, it's almost like they want to be isolated. Like, stop bothering me, everyone. Everyone's walking around. Don't bother me. Don't bother me. But when you're in a a town or an area with fewer people, it's almost as if connecting is something they all want to do. Everyone waves at each other on the streets here. (laughs) I mean, not on the highways, but, you know, on the back roads. You're driving along, they're driving the other way. You're the only two people on the road for the next, you know, five or ten minutes. And you're wave. That's kind of a neat thing. I don't know, it's just giving me some perspective. That perspective I can take with me as another reference as I go through life. As I'm going back to um, Atlanta in a couple weeks and I think back to where I was going, hmm, I wonder if that would be a nice place to return to and stay for a few years. I don't know. I guess I'll just keep an open mind so that I can step into my power and be firm in any decision that I make so that I can feel good in the actions that I take. And I want you to feel that same way. I want you to keep an open mind so you can step into your power. That helps you be firm in your decisions and actions so that you can create the life you want. Always take steps to grow and evolve. You are powerful beyond measure. And above all, and this is something I absolutely know to be true about you, you are amazing. Amazing.